in unprecedented times, folks. In a precedent moment, COVID is driving this country crazy, and, and uh, people are looking at this ominous winter coming here as the cases keep on spiking. And then we have our political turmoil revealing the deep divisions in our country, taking us sort of quasi-apocalyptic overtones and foreboding of what is to come. And in these crucial times, people are wondering, the foremost question that must be answered first and foremost is, why would a pastor shave off all of his hair? <laughs> For no good reason whatsoever. <laughs> Hello, folks. Uh, how you doing? I'm Greg Boyd. I'm teaching pastor here at Wilderness Church, and uh, it's good to be back in the saddle. I've had a couple weeks of uh, COVID wrestling. I do not wish that on anybody. It's the strangest, stupidest bug in the world. Uh, but in the midst of all this, for some reason, whatever, I just decided it's 2020. If you're going to break bad, this is going to be the year to do it. So there, Boyd breaking bad. How's that? Uh, really, I, I just sort of got it. Um, uh, maybe it was the COVID fever. I don't know what was going on. But I, I, at one point, just started really hating my hair. I just hated it. It's like, you have taken up so much of my life. If you think about it, how much time you spend, you know, and I don't, I don't I've never been like that much into my hair. But you think about, as a kid, you know, high school, my, my, my giant afro was my pride. And I had to get that just right. I had to pat it down just, you know, so all that time spent on that. And then as you get older, you get a little bit less of that, of course. And you got to find creative ways of trying to cover it up. You know, I have enough hair here. I can make it still look kind of full. And you know what? At some point, who gives a rip? I, it's like, I don't want to think about this anymore. And so the only way to not think about it anymore is just to lose it. And so actually, it's, I can't get used to the look of it, but, uh, uh, but it feels cool. I like the feel of it. And check this out. Me and Bruce Willis, we got it going on. All right. Now I should get a tattoo right there, shouldn't I, Mary? Wouldn't that look just great? All right. So uh, it's, I don't know if it's going to last, who knows. Uh, but I'll tell you that I am so thankful um, uh, for all the prayers uh, that, that we had, all the support, the love that was piled on Shelly and I. We're both doing very, very well. Uh, we're, we're, we're past the symptoms. He's still a little tired now and then, but... Um, but we're, we're, we're doing great, and I just really have appreciated the, the, the love. I appreciate the fact that we've got such a, a team of people around here. Um, uh, we didn't skip a beat. It was just, uh, we've got some wonderful, smart, godly people here. And I think all the panel discussions we had, the questions that they took on, they were so gutsy, and it was just there. And, and so I feel really good about a church that's just solid. It, you just don't uh, lean on one person. So uh, it's, it's really good to be back here. Well, here we are, folks. We are, in some ways, in a really kind of unprecedented uh, moment in history. Um, whole lot going on. Uh, and I don't know what you think about the election, happy, sad, whatever, but one thing is, I think, pretty clear, and that is that um, the, the divisions, the polarizations that we've experienced over the last decade and that are intensifying, they're not going away, clearly. We are a country that is, is, is deeply, deeply divided. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we've allowed ourselves to be siloed uh, into our own little echo chambers uh, where we get our little buzz, our righteous buzz going. And, 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 and folks now that live in these two different narratives, or actually there's a lot of sub-narratives that you can be conspiratorial theories and whatever, but we get siloed in these things and we go farther and farther apart, and the farther we, we get apart, the less we can understand each other. In fact, the farther we get apart, the less we even want to understand each other. And so you end up with, 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 with two large groups of the population who just see the other side as evil, as dangerous. Uh, you're, you're, you're toying with totalitarianism, or no, you're toying with socialism, and, and, and just scream at each other. And see, if you're not going to try to understand, well, then you have to just try to win. And what winning looks like is you shut the other side up. And so maybe you do. You get four years, yeah, you're on top. But then they get on top for four years, and then you get on top again. And it goes back and forth. And see, that is not winning. <laughs> that is called spinning, not winning. We just go round and round and round in gridlock. And the thing is, is there's a lot of folks, and, and I think an increasing number of folks, who are waking up to this realization that we've got to. We've got to, if we're going to be a country, we've got to find a way to get out of our echo chambers, we've got to find a way to start trying to understand each other and dignifying one another and learning how to discuss difficult topics without losing our cool over everything. Uh, we've got to find ways of, of, of making voices heard but without the violence. Um, and, and, and we've got to pull this back from the brink. Uh, either we do that or a nation divided against itself cannot stand. Not, 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 not with divisions this deep, half the country. 
Uh, Lord, help us. I, I have so appreciated, and I just want to give one more plug to this group, uh, Braver Angels. I have just come to so respect. Bill Do- Doherty uh, is just an incredible human being and is doing a great job with this group that is just trying to, they're just trying to pull people together, trying to say, let's talk about things. Let's, let's learn civility. And they model that, and they have all these workshops. Uh, on, on election night, I'm going to share this, this thing. Um, on election night, I, I, uh, uh, Braver Angels had all the whole evening, I think it went until like 2 in the morning, 15-minute uh, segments of people who would just reflect on uh, the aspects of unity, uh, something along those lines. And they had one track, uh, little 15-minute services is what they were. And one track was uh, for people of faith, uh, and they had another track that was just secular. Uh, and I hopped between the two. And I found them both both to be just beautiful. Um, in this election night, when there's so much tension in the air and so much angst and all of that, here a group of people unknown to each other, 200 folks, I guess, on average, would, would meet in these groups, at least the ones that I attended. And um, there was just a, it's like we are here to do something that's, be, that's different than what's being done out there. Uh, you know, one person would share this song he just wrote uh, about a neighbor and walking side by side and maybe we crossed swords before but let's forgive now and move on. And it was just beautiful. And it, 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 it created its own kind of unity, its own kind of bond. And it, it struck me as I it was enjoying this, this, this moment of, of unity amidst these, these folks on this election night that this is something of, of what Jesus is getting at. And we'll get to this passage here in a moment. But when he says that you're to be a light set on a hill, you're supposed to shine. You're supposed to, uh, you're salt and light. You do something different than what's being done out there. And that's what we were doing here in our, our, our little huddles. Uh, we're, we're modeling a different way of, of, of discussing issues, a different way of handling things, a different way of conducting ourselves. And see, braver angels, their heart is to save the nation, to pull the nation back from the brink. And that's a noble and good cause. And I so respect them for doing it. I encourage you to be a part of that. Uh, I've learned a lot just being a part of these workshops and, and participating in various classes. But see, that's not my mission. That's not our mission. I mean, that's a good mission to have. But our mission isn't to save a nation. Our, our mission is to manifest a different nation, if you will, a different kingdom. We are, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And... and um, that means we are to put on display the character of our king, our unique king, and the character of our unique kingdom. And to have that light contrast with the world. Um, so part of the kingdom call is to be peacemakers, to be able to transcend the polarizations, to help people uh, hear one another, and help ourselves to understand what the other person's saying, and to model love as we're trying to understand them. And, and, and it's, it's, so our call to be peacemakers intersects with like the braver angels' call to try to be peacemakers. We do it for different reasons, but our callings overlap. We're to live in love. Everything we do is to be done in love. Every single thing, including debating hot topics. So folks, see, that is our job. Uh, whether you're in America or China or North Korea or Russia or Vietnam, it doesn't matter what country you're in. Uh, our job is always the same. It's, it's to model Jesus Christ for people, model good news for people, uh, to invite people into this alternative, beautiful, humble, servant, cross-like kingdom that Jesus inaugurated with his death and resurrection and that we are now carrying on in his spirit. Our job is always the same. If things are going well, your job is the same. If it's going bad, job is the same. Country doing good, keep doing the job. Country going down the toilet, just keep doing the job. Being filled with God's spirit, putting on display the beauty of God's servant-like character. We bear witness to a different kingdom. That's our, our fundamental job. That's how we glorify the Father. Okay, so now we're uh, in, in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to go back to our Sermon on the Mount, and we're going to now spend a couple weeks dealing with uh, three verses. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. A lot of scholars argue that this is sort of the linchpin of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's the thematic center it, 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 it crystallizes in a nutshell kind of the through line that weaves the whole thing together. We are called to be salt and we're called to be light. Uh, here's how the passage reads, Matthew 5. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But, see, if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. 
And then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Pray with me here for a moment. Uh, Abba Father, I thank you for every person listening to this message right now, and that will listen later on. I pray you open our hearts, open our minds to let your kingdom penetrate deeply, uh, do its transforming work, do its healing work, restorative work, and further, Lord, use this message to further uh, refine us as your kingdom people, to deepen our commitment to being your distinct kingdom people, to being salt and light to this world. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen, amen. All right, uh, you are the salt of the earth. I, I, I'll leave uh, talking about the light for later messages next week, the week after that. Uh, I want to focus on salt. In fact, I, I don't know if I've ever preached a message on being salty before. I think it's my first salt message. There you go. But it's kind of odd if you think about it because we don't use salt usually as, as sort of a, a complimentary, you know, category. Like, uh, well, you're looking salty today. Uh, boy, you are just salt right now. So it's kind of, you are the salt of the earth. It's not obvious what's that, what, what that's supposed to mean. Here's the thing. Salt in the ancient world, it had a lot of different functions. It was very, very important. Uh, but there's two main functions that it had that I want to bring out that I think apply to us being salty people, being the uh, salt of the earth. The first function was perhaps the most important, and, and this was a preservation kind of a function. Uh, you're dealing in the ancient world, you don't have any kind of refrigeration. Uh, and and, and the, the, in Palestine, you're dealing with some pretty hot weather most of the year round. Uh, and so here's the thing, if you're a farmer and you have been, you know, slaughtering the sheep or the cows or whatever, you're going to bring it to the marketplace. Um, well, you've got to transport that there in the hot sun and, and you've got to put it on the market. And who knows how long it's there before it gets sold. Uh, and you might have to be taking some back with you. Um, what do you do when it's 100 degrees and you've got some meat that's going to be rotting in the sun? Well, salt turns out to be this preserver. You pack it in salt, and that preserves it. It protects it from decay. It can last a whole lot longer when it's packed in salt than, than, than otherwise. So salt has this function in the ancient world of holding things together, of preventing decay. It's a preservative. So Jesus is saying you are the preservative of the world. Now, what are we preserving? Think about this. What, what, what is that we're supposed to be preserving? The way that this passage, is, at least so far as I've studied, the way that it usually is, is unpacked is something along these lines. We Christians, are, we, we preserve uh, morality in the world. We preserve tradition in the world against the forces of liberalism that are trying to change things and always thinks that the, the new has got to be improved. We are to be the conservators. We hold fast. We hold society together. Hold fast to that traditional morality. We are the uh, kind of the moral policemen of the, the, the country. We are protecting people against themselves because they don't know the depths of their own sin. Now here's the thing. Um, if you look at the teachings of Jesus, uh, you can say a lot of different things about those teachings, but one of the things that would not come to your mind if you're understanding his teaching at all and his example at all one thing that wouldn't come to mind is, oh, he's a conservative. He's conserving traditional Judeo-Christian values. Because as a matter of fact, Jesus at every turn was turning those things on their head. Oh, you know, what the, in the Old Testament, yeah, you were blessed if you had all these riches, whatever. But I'm saying you're blessed if you're poor. And he turns all the blessings and the cursing of the covenant on its head. He says, oh, you've heard it said unto you, but I say unto you. Okay, that was then, but this is now. And some of his new teachings were radical, like love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. He, he, he blows family values sky high. He says, hey, unless you're willing to you know, turn your back on your mom and dad for my sake, you're not worthy of me. Uh, let the dead bury the dead. All those traditional customs there. You know, he blows those sky high. That's one of the reasons he got crucified. He was a radical. Just radical. All of those nice hierarchies that keep society in place where everybody knows their place, everybody knows their functions, you know what your role is. It's, it keeps society ordered, right? And, and, and the guardians of morality are supposed to hold fast to those things, right? Everyone knows their place, right? Jesus comes along and blows the whole thing sky high. All that hierarchy, all those systems, all those rankings, he's just, 
That's why he's interacting with people like the Samaritan and the centurion and all these folks that a good Jewish guy is not supposed to interact with. The movement that Jesus birthed was not a conservative movement. It was a revolution. It was a revolution. It was a revolution of scandalous love. So, so what, 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 what we're to be preserving, I don't think Jesus is saying you're, you're, you're to be the moral police of the, of the society as though we're superior. <laughs> like, we, yeah, well, put us in charge. We'll make sure things go right. No, uh, that's not what he's getting at. Now, we, 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 we've shared a number of times that uh, to understand the Sermon on the Mount, the best way to do it is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the interpreter of the Sermon on the Mount because he embodies the Sermon on the Mount. And so let's ask the question, what did Jesus preserve? What was he about preserving? Here's one interesting thing about Jesus. I don't think we, we emphasize this enough, but uh, when you read the Gospels, especially the Synoptic Gospels and especially Luke, um, you find that Jesus, he would go everywhere with anybody. He just, he just uh, you know, society gives us the tracks that we're supposed to walk on. You, you walk on this track and you walk on this track. And, but Jesus just jumps tracks. He gets invited to a Pharisee's house, he goes. He gets invited to a Sadducee's house, he goes. He gets invited to a prostitute's house, he goes. A tax collector's house, he goes. He partied, he fellowshiped, he ate with these different groups of people who otherwise would have nothing to do with one another. Uh, he was not at all a siloed person. He wasn't quarantined. Now, here's a question that, that, that I think is just really interesting to ask. Jesus is this rabbi. He's a holy man. Crowds follow him. He heals people. Um, the prostitutes and the tax collectors, who are the two most judged groups in the first century, they know that he wouldn't condone all their behavior, obviously. And yet they wanted to hang out with him. I find that to just be astonishing. They wanted to hang out with him. They invited him over. They fellowshiped together. Why? They never did that with the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees, you hang around the Pharisees and you're a prostitute, you're going to get judged. Uh, your worth is going to be undermined, not affirmed. But there's something about Jesus that they gravitated to him. His his, his love for them and acceptance of them was greater than, it got communicated more forcefully than whatever opinion he might have about their lifestyle or their choices. It's the love that got communicated. And they really did want to hang out with them. In, in, in Luke chapter 7, there's a story, it's a beautiful story about this lady. Jesus was invited to this Pharisee's house, Simon is his name. He goes, and they're having their little Pharisee party, talking theology, all men, just kind of hobnobbing the way that the righteous do. And in breaks this lady, a woman of ill repute, a woman from the street, a prostitute. And, and she crashes this party, and she falls at Jesus' feet. He's reclining on the ground like they did when they ate. And, and, and she starts crying and, and washing his dirty feet with her tears and wiping them with her hair and anointing his, his, his feet with his alabaster ointment, which was a tool of her trade. Smelling nice was a real attractive thing in the ancient world. It kind of still is. And, and, and so here she's using this tool that would be there to seduce guys into uh, her, her business, but now she's using it as an act of worship towards Jesus. And of course, the Pharisees are scandalized by this. This is an outrage. Simon, no doubt, is worried because who saw this woman go into his house? What's the word on the street going to be about this? This isn't supposed to be happening. We're not supposed to be intersecting with this person. And they're judging her and they're judging Jesus. What kind of a guy, what kind of a man of God would allow a woman like this to be touching him? Well, this could almost be construed as erotic. And you got to ask the question, why would she do that? She, this lady would know if you go into that house, you're, you're walking into a den of lions. They're going to eat you alive. And yet she had to do it. And you don't have to read much between the lines to see that this woman was, had to have been deeply, deeply moved by Jesus, touched by Jesus, transformed by Jesus. We're not given the contact, but she was out of her mind that she had to just somehow say thank you to him. See, in a world where this lady, and no one wakes up in the morning, it's a first century nice little Palestinian girl says, hey, I think I'll be a prostitute today. No, you're, you're, society puts you, forces you into this thing. You're, you're, you're there of necessity. And in that place, there is this judgment on you. Everybody, you're the person that everybody loves to despise except for the guys who use you. And they in their own way despise you just as well. So she lives in a world where worth is being taken. But here comes this man 
who somehow saw her as a person who didn't see her as the category or as a problem or as a sin or as anything, as a human being. And, and, and somehow that love got through. That's why Jesus could say to Simon, you know, I came in here, you hardly gave me any hospitality. This lady has just been pouring herself out because the one who knows they've been forgiven much is the one who loves much. This lady had received forgiveness. She had felt clean, clean around him. See, I think this is what Jesus always was doing. He's preserving the worth of people. And even in that, that party discussion there, he protects that woman's worth uh, from Simon and all the other judges. This woman that you look down on, that you disdain, this woman, she is full of love. And that's what the kingdom's all about. He's a protector, a preserver of people's worth. Uh, his whole ministry was doing this. You know, when Jesus heals people, he is saying, you are worth healing. Uh, when, he, when he feeds the crowds, he's saying, you are worth feeding. Uh, when he frees people from demonic oppression, he's saying, you are worth freeing. When he's just hanging out with people, he's saying, you are worth hanging out with. And ultimately, his whole life is summed up on the cross where he says, you are worth dying for. You are worth dying for. Jesus affirms the worth of every individual. In fact, affirms their unsurpassable worth because he's willing to pay an unsurpassable price for them. You have this worth. Our job is to do that. It's to imitate that. Uh, to live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Uh, to, to, to love is all about ascribing worth to another at cost to yourself. And that is our most fundamental job. We are worth preservers. In a world that is always sucking worth off of people, judging people, rating people, ranking people, filing people, we are to be the people who know that every individual has got that unsurpassable worth because Jesus Christ died for them and, and they're created in the image of God. And our job is to reflect that worth by how we think about them, how we speak about them, how we speak to them, how we interact with them, how we treat them. I want us to see just how fundamental, how, how distinct this is because see, the whole the world runs on this worth-giving game. And it varies from culture to culture, but it's the same game. Uh, Someone desires a system whereby you get points for having this and you, and, and you get points taken for not having this. Some kind of criteria. Oh, you're good looking. Well, that's a point in your favor. You might get ahead with that one. Work that one. Oh, you're pretty. Okay, that, 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 that's a plus. You can use that. And it's going to give you points here. Oh, you're not so pretty. Well, that's a, that's a negative, but we'll find other ways to get around that. You got some unique talent. You got some unique ability. You're able to get a lot of money. You're able to drive nice cars. Oh, that's a success. That's a point in, this, in, this, in our system. Uh, in, in some circles, if you're, if you're white, that's a point in your favor. If you're male, that's a point in your favor. If, if you know the right people, if you have the right opinions, if you belong to our right club, you get points if you agree with us because we're the smart ones. But if you end up disagreeing, we will cut you off. So there's this point system. You rank people. And we do it automatically. It's ingrained in us. Jesus comes along and, and he blows apart the whole world system. He blows apart that, that worth-giving system, the meritocracy. Oh, the, you have this advantage. and you know, he, he blows that whole thing sky high, and he does it by what he teaches, and he does it by how he lives. And he especially does it by how he dies, because he dies for everybody. Um, he, he blows that sky high. That's why he crosses all these boundaries. He, he, the, the, all of the pathways of, of who you're supposed to relate to, who you're supposed to know, you know keep, keep the, the groups distinct, all those things are predicated on this worth-giving system. Who is on the top and who's on the bottom? Making sure that the categories stay straight. Jesus blows those all sky high. He, 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 he treats the lowest as though they were kings. Uh, it, it's it's uh, no ranking, no filing system. No. In fact, he takes those who are looked down upon the most in the culture and he raises them up to uh, play roles of being a hero, the good Samaritan. Uh, the Levi priest that everyone looks up to, they got all the points, but no, they're the ones who don't even know what a neighbor is. But it's that Samaritan that everyone's down on because he's got all the negative points. Well, that's the one that ends up doing the kingdom thing and recognizing what your neighbor is. And see, this is why the Apostle Paul could, could say Galatians 3 and Colossians 2, he says, that in Christ, when you're in Christ, when that's your identity, then there's, gotta be, there's no male or female, no Jew, no Gentile, neither bond nor free, neither rich nor poor, all of those categories that the world invests so much significance in. Oh, you're a this, a that, or that, whatever. It's null and void. Because when you know your worth is found in Christ, there's no other worth you need to derive from anything, and there's no other worth you can, can, that can be taken. And that's Jesus' whole ministry. You have a worth that the world can't give to you and the world can't take away from you because it's given to you uh, by your, your Father in heaven. Uh, you are worth... The, the almighty God becoming a human being and dying for. And that's 
apart from any discussion of what you do or don't do or what you appear or don't appear or whatever, it's there because you're a human being. Our job is to reflect that, and that's how we're salt. We preserve that worth. Uh, in, in a world of judgments where people are stealing people's worth all the time to feel better about themselves, that's what a judgment is. I, I get a little buzz knowing that at least I'm not as despicable, deplorable, and pathetic as you. <laughs> uh, well, it, 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 in a world where people are stealing the worth, we ought to be the worth preservers. No, you have this infinite value. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what the world thinks, what the, how you rate, who you, you're popular with or not popular with. It doesn't matter. You forgot this worth. And see, everything we do, individually and collectively, is, is, a, is a manifestation of that. Um, you have a mentoring program for at-risk kids after school. And you're saying, you're worth pouring into. You've got potential. We believe in you. God believes in you. And we want to come around you and, and help you realize that. All the outreaches we do with, with, with the homeless and, and, and building tiny homes to have this tiny home village. It's, what we're saying is you deserve, a, you deserve a house. You are worth building a house for. And it, we consider it an honor, honor to do that with you and then invite you in on this, uh, this community. With our food shelf, uh, you're, we're saying that you're, you are worth helping. Uh, when, when parents decide they're going to adopt a child, they're saying you are worth bringing into our life. You're ascribing worth. You're giving worth. When you walk with a friend through an addiction or through a, a, a breakup of a marriage or whatever, you're saying, you're worth hanging in there for. You're worth fighting for. I, I'm with you in the long haul on this. All of this is ascribing worth. And that's what it is to be salt in a world where people's worth gets decayed very quickly in the hot sun of judgment. Boy, that came out kind of poetic. In a world where, I probably can't say it twice, where our worth gets decayed by the hot sun of, of human judgment, we are to be the salt that preserves, that holds it together. No, that worth is intact. Don't let them steal it from you. Now, here's the thing, or here's one of the things. For the salt to function like salt as a preservative, you have to be in contact with the food that you're preserving. Not rocket science. Uh, you can have a, a ton of salt over here, right out of the Dead Sea. Man, well, look at all that great salt. All that great... And here's look at all this meat that we need to keep from rotting in the hot sun. But if the salt's over there and the meat's over here, it's not going to do any good. Uh, to, be, to do any good, you've got to be in contact. That salt's got to get packed on that meat. It's got to just surround that meat tightly. Hold it in place. You've got to stay in contact. So here's the thing. Here's another reason why it was so interesting that Jesus was just so... Uh, Transient. He was able to just cross all, the, broke all the taboos, all the rules about who you're supposed to relate to. And he would not get quarantined. He would not get siloed. He, 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 here's the difference between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they've got a religious kind of holiness. It's the kind of holiness that religious people always kind of grab onto. It's the holiness of superiority. Yes, we're, we're not perfect, but we're not like those folks. It's a, a holiness that separates from. Um, literally separates from. We are not going to be hanging around the likes of those people. Okay, that's pharisaical holiness, religious holiness. Jesus' holiness was something totally different, and, and his is the real holiness. Because see, he is the one sinless person in history. He's the all-holy son, son of God. So how does he manifest his holiness? Not by standing off from people, lest he get dirty. No, he mixes it up with people. He dives into their lives. He gets involved because he's salt. He's preserving worth, and you can't do that from a distance. You've got to be involved in the life uh, and, and know where the worth is hurting. We know where the person is suffering in order to be able to address it. Jesus mixed it up with these folks, and he did it, and it ruined his reputation because whenever you, you know, birds of a feather flock together, uh, all the Pharisees are up there, look, look at the people he hangs out with, those drunkards, those womenizers, those, you know, and, and it ruins his reputation. But he doesn't care. He's not how to, he's, he's done with the point system. He's not trying to get points from the Pharisees, so he doesn't mind if he loses points with the Pharisees. Um, he mixes it up. Folks, so here's the thing. I know we're in the middle of a terrible pandemic that is getting worse, uh, and who knows where the ceiling is. Buckle your seatbelt. It could be a long winter. So that, that, now we've got to practice social distancing and, and wearing masks and all that, and that complicates everything. Um, but I, I, COVID or not, Here's a truth that we need to wrestle with. And the truth is that uh, Jesus' followers, on the whole, we are, even before COVID happened, we're too quarantined. 
We're too quarantined. There's all the studies that show this, that like 98% of Christians' time is spent around Christians. We're quarantined, pretty isolated. And it's because we're like normal people. We like to hang around people who look like us, talk like us, think like us, believe like us. It's easy. It's easy. We, say, we share all the same stuff, so it's easy. Now, that's fine to have. In fact, we all need to have groups where I can, we can just be ourselves, and, and it's not work, and it's fun, and it's, it's refreshing. We need that for sure. And I'll say that there are times where you, with family and friends, uh, maybe all your attention needs to be on that family and friends because maybe you're going through a crisis. There are seasons like that where it's okay to spend, you just have to deal with whatever thing you're dealing with. You don't have time and energy for, for, for outsiders. Got that. There are seasons. The truth still stands that we tend to be too quarantined, especially if our calling is to be salt. Because you can't be salt if you're isolated from the, 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 the food you're supposed to be preserving. Uh, what it means is that, that we need to follow, uh, and just work this in however it's going to fit into your life. But to follow the pattern of Jesus is to follow him in this cross-cultural thing that he does. He's unique in this. He, he, he floats above all the categories, the boundaries, and he's mixing it up with people that otherwise would never mix it up. We need to be more cosmopolitan like that, going out of our way intentionally. Ask yourself the question, where might there be people whose worth is being trampled on? Where might there be people who are really hungry for worth? Everyone's starving for worth. It's what we live for. It's what we're hungry for. Everyone's hungry for this. Said some know and some don't. And uh, uh, we go everywhere with anyone because Jesus did, but but the, uh, the, the heart is towards those who know that they're sick and need a physician, those who are hungry and know that they're hungry. Where might you be salt to someone's life? Just ask that question and ask the Spirit to lead you in this. Um, you, one thing you could do is uh, volunteer at the church and some of our ministries, be, become part of that. But however the Spirit leads you. And I'll say just one more thing about it, uh, about salt, about preservation salt. Then I'll have something else to say about flavor, but hang on. Um, that... Um, what was I going to say? The one thing about, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is something that we can be doing, in fact, we should be doing all day long, every day. Um, to make this part of, to, here's the thing, and I've, 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 I've taught on this before about how, you know, when you're riding down the highway, it can just be a wasted highway moment, fine, that's funny, and listen to radio. Or maybe sometimes you might want to, like, turn off the radio and, and say, you know, I'm, a, I'm here on assignment. Sometimes we forget that. And our assignment is to be agreeing with God about the unsurpassable worth of every person that we see and to reflect that. And so why not become a blessing machine as you're driving down the highway to wherever you're going? And, and throughout the day, try to sprinkle it into your consciousness. And maybe you need reminders to do this. Remind yourself that you are to be a blessing. And, and so just bless people as you're going throughout the day. Uh, that is its own form of salt preservation. You're, you're locking in the, the worth of the people that, that you're coming in contact with. Whatever else you may see and notice about the person, don't think about it, don't worry about it, set it aside, because the one thing that matters is Jesus Christ and him crucified. This person was worth Jesus dying for. And so become a blessing machine throughout the day. So we, are, we, we preserve people's worth. But there's a second function that uh, salt uh, had in the ancient world. And it still has this function today, and that is to, to bring out flavor. To bring out flavor. Now, this is an important thing. Uh, I had never had it happen before I got COVID, this wonderful, delightful bug. Uh, I, I went two weeks where I could hardly taste anything. Could hardly smell anything, could hardly taste anything. And you know how unenjoyable food is when you can't taste it? Ah. It's just boom. And what really was tormenting was that people brought over all this scrumptious food. I mean, it was just oh, all my favorites. It's, and it's, it's tormenting to have all this wonderful food and you can't taste it. Oh, dear. Poor Greg. Uh, that's how this thing, this COVID thing worked. It's like, uh, you know, you go along. It's like, oh, here, serve up another little set of symptoms. Let's have the shivers for a couple of days. Hey, now let's try a little bit of diarrhea. Oh, that was really good. What happens if we give them extreme nausea for a couple of days? Now let's take away a sense of taste. It just keeps on rotating the thing. It drives it crazy. Uh, so so I, what I would try to do is I got my, 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 my favorite season, Jane's Crazy Salt, and I'd be pouring this crazy salt on there trying to get some kind of a taste. And boy, what, what, what a joy when it finally came back. And now I've been making up for lost time, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I was going to brag on the COVID diet, lost five pounds. Well, I've gained eight of it back. So there's that. But see, okay, here's the thing. 
this here is a kind of salt. It's got salt in it, but it's got a lot of other things too, uh, mainly things that aren't good for you, sodium and things sort of like that, which is why I try to limit how much of this I put on things. Um, but it, 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 it's, there to, it's seasoning salt. It adds flavor. But real salt in the ancient world, real salt, it, it wasn't the thing that added the flavor. It's the thing that brought the flavor out. The flavor's already there. The salt just enhances what is already there. Um, this is, I think, important because I think a, a lot of folks, a lot of Christians in the West especially, we have this idea that, that Jesus is sort of like seasoning salt. And we're supposed to sell the Jesus seasoning salt. You know, Jesus here, if you just sprinkle a little Jesus, mm, oh, it just sweetens up your life. It just adds a little bit of spice, you know, and you're having trouble in the marriage. But yeah, a little Jesus salt on that, oh, it'll make your marriage a little better. Your sex life's a little better. Oh, you need financial problems. Have some Jesus salt. Mmm, flavors things up. You go through a sad time. Here, have some Jesus salt. Oh, it just sprinkles. It makes your life so much better. So you have already a good life, but now you can make it a little bit more, enhance it with just a pinch of Jesus. Uh, and no one's buying any Jesus salt. Uh, they're not buying it, folks. But I think, I think that's kind of how, uh, how a lot of Christians see themselves, which means we are the flavor bringers. Here we are to save the day. We bring the Jesus salt to flavor things your way, whatever. I, I, you, you are the bland, but we bring the spice. Uh, you've got the problems, but we've got the answers. Uh, you've got the issues, but we've got the Jesus salt. We'll rescue you and see... When we think we know what, people, what flavor people need, we're in trouble. There's a great book out there called When Helping Hurts. I encourage you to read it. Um, it's kind of a classic in the field now. But the, the author just catalogs how Christians so often, and it's been a real pattern going on throughout history, uh, but never more so that, than today, where we think we know what people need, and we come in to rescue, and we end up doing more harm than good because we don't know what people need. We don't take the time to learn and listen. It, 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 we have this kind of an arrogance. We are the cowboys with the white hats. Right in. Save the day. There's an, another good documentary on this. It's called Poverty, Inc. I really encourage you to watch that. Uh, and, and one of the things they talk about in Poverty, Inc. is how in Haiti, in 2011, they had this d terrible earthquake. Uh, destroyed a great part of Port-au-Prince. And um, it was just devastating. And so the world, you know... There's a lot of good intention, well-intentioned people in this world. And, 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 and so countries start sending stuff to help the Haitians in this terrible situation. And a lot of it was really necessary and good. But see, some of it wasn't. For example, uh, there was a business that some young folks had started there, some uh, entrepreneurs. They, they, they were making solar panels. And they had a, a, uh, a deal with the government where they're going to uh, make panels for the roads because the infrastructure in Haiti is kind of hurting when it comes to electricity. But if you can have solar panels, you could actually have lighted roads, and it was going to be this massive project. They already were employing 200 people with the potential of employing more and more as this thing grew. The earthquake hits, and guess what? Norway, Sweden, America, Canada, others. We sent solar panels all over the place. Sent them down there. Oh, it's flooded with solar panels. See, now, now these folks are on top of this, all the other disaster, now they're unemployed. You just undermined that business there, which would have been a foothold to start building an economy, but now you've taken away that. Same thing with food. Instead of asking, what resources do you have? You know, how can we come alongside of you? What's working well? Let's build on it. Instead of that, we think we know. We just start sending food, produce, corn, chicken, all the rest. And now these farmers who weren't affected by the, 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 the uh, uh, earthquake, now they're out of business. So you end up creating more unemployment. Instead of, doing, instead of humbly asking the question, first, what do you need? Now there's times for emergency relief where you just need food, you need clothing, you need to stay alive. And... There's times for that, but that has got to be a short-term thing. The long-term thing has got to be how do we help you get on your feet? What do you need? What, what are the resources that are there? What can you bring to the table? And here's what I know about the Haitians. I, I, in the 90s, spent quite a bit of time there. And I don't know people that's more resilient and more creative in the face of disaster than Haitian folks. They've got resources. Degage. They always use that expression. Degage. If what you got doesn't work, well then, then, then make what you got work. <laughs> you know, if you don't have the right tool, then make the wrong tool fit. If degage, it means you get by. We'll find a way to get by with this. They're very resourceful. Uh, they don't need saving. They just need helping. 
But see, that's where it's so important where you ask, what is the flavor on the ground? What can we bring out from you? How can we help come alongside of you? So do you own this? And then you take pride in the rebuilding of this. Soul, true soul, doesn't try to force flavor on things. It brings the flavor that's already there out. And see, this is a kingdom call, folks, because what we need to know and always remember is that we don't bring God to people. Like, they're godless and we're going to bring God to them. God's already working in their lives. Uh, God is right now, uh, Colossians 1.19, he's working throughout the cosmos uh, to reconcile everything on earth and in heaven and under the earth uh, through the blood of Jesus Christ. God's working everywhere in every heart. Paul tells us that in Acts 17. So our job is not to bring something that they don't have. It's rather to partner with what God's already doing there. But that means we've got to be in contact with the people, and that means we've got to be humble, asking what's the flavor here. Uh, uh, that not what we're going to bring and save or anything like that. No, humbly to say, what, how do we partner with you to bring out the resources that you've had? So, if, folks, if, if you're struggling with a marriage, bad marriage, for example, I can't give you any Jesus salt. Sorry, there's no little quick fix here. Oh, take three of these and you'll be fine in the morning. But I can tell you that, that in the body of Christ, uh, we're to be the people where we'll walk with you through that. You need people in your life who will say, what are the resources you two have that you can bring to, to work with God to bring about a healed and, and a healthy marriage? And so it is for every issue in life. Forget the magic stuff. No one's buying the magic stuff anymore. That's always been a, a line. No one wants any more seasoning salt. What they want is reality. And reality is... Uh, resources that they've got there that we can come alongside of and say, how do we bring that out? Uh, we're called to be different, to be the salt, preservative to be the salt that brings the flavor out of folks. But the final question then we got to ask is, is this. Uh, it's one that Jesus asked. What happens if the salt loses its saltiness? What do you do then? And so here's, here's what the problem was uh, that he's addressing. The, the salt, on the one hand, it needs to be in contact with the meat that it's preserving. But uh, in the process of packing meat and transporting it on the carts and whatever, you get other things mixed in with that salt. It gets diluted. It gets dirty. And the more diluted it gets, the more dirty it gets, the more it gets mixed up with common dirt, the less it has that preservative effect and, or that flavoring effect. And it can get to the point where the salt has gotten so diluted, mixed up with other things, that it no longer can serve as salt at all. It's just common dirt. And that's why Jesus says, well, if, then you've got to do with it what you do with common dirt. And that is... You, you throw it on the ground, you walk on it. That's what you do with common dirt. Nothing special about this salt anymore. It's lost its saltiness. This, I think, addresses the most important aspect of this passage, and it's one of the most challenging aspects of faith throughout history, and that is, how do you preserve the distinctness of the salt? How do you, how do you stay different? You need to be in contact with that which you're preserving, but it, we have to be, take care that we don't get diluted. By getting our kingdom call mixed up with other things. Uh, this has always been the challenge for God's people. In the Old Testament, God wanted them to be unique, different, set apart. A model for the other nations a little bit what it looks like when, when, when you don't need a human ruler because God is your ruler. And, and he, he had to model something of his original beautiful design for humanity. But see, the Israelites, they didn't want to be different. They didn't want to be weird. That, that, that felt scary. They wanted to be like the other nations. They wanted an army like the other nations and to have a king like the other nations and security like the other nations and fight like the other nations and compete with the other nations. And since God is not a control freak, it doesn't force truth on anyone, God goes along with that, but they get deluded. The salt loses its saltiness. And to a large degree, Israel just becomes another nation, looks just like the other nations, just functions the same way. And that same thing with the early church. For the first 300 years or so, Christians were just following the pattern of Jesus, living in that self-sacrificial love. But then Constantine offers the church all this wonderful power, and you can help run the Roman Empire, and no more suffering. And now Christians begin to mix up the kingdom call with a bunch of other stuff. It gets diluted. And now, 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 now the church is going to look like, like all the other nations. It's going to run just like all the other nations. We're going to conquer the world in Jesus' name, but the good old-fashioned way, with guns and swords rather than through the love of the cross. The saltiness got diluted. It became one more religion, a, a religious version of what's already out there. The call is to preserve the salt. We're called to reflect Abba Father's character, humble servant character, uh, individually and collectively, we're called to be representatives of this different kingdom and this different king. We're called to invite people in a different way of life that is good news because it's fulfilling and it goes on forever. That's our call. 
But if we're not careful, that call could get mixed up with all sorts of dirt. Just the typical stuff that's out there. It gets mixed in with a little bit of nationalism, you know, and, and the gospel gets co-opted in that direction. And it gets mixed up with, sucked into some of the partisan politics. And you get sucked up in maybe the consumerism of the culture or the individualism of the culture or the materialism of the culture, the comfort of the culture, the self-righteousness of the culture. And so you end up, you have a, kind of a good news there, but it's all mixed up with a bunch of other things. For a lot of folks out there, when, when they think about Christianity, evangelicals especially, they don't think about something different, unique, set apart, whatever. No, it, it's, it, it's, it's a voting block. And, and if they don't like that voting block, well, then they don't like you. They don't even see the salt because the politics gets in the way. This is what happens when we allow the common stuff to get mixed up with the unique kingdom stuff. We've got to ask this question, and it's a hard question to ask, honestly, but it's one that's so important, and that is, where's the salt? Where's the salt? Um, where's the contrast? Where does the church stand out? Now, I can give you hundreds of examples of churches uh, in America and around the globe that are outstanding in terms of looking like Jesus, serving like Jesus, loving like Jesus, being humble like Jesus. They're out there, and they're growing. But on the whole, where's the salt? Where's the contrast? Where's the beauty? Um, where, where, where is the church known to be preserving the worth of those who are the most judged in society? Protecting the inherent worth, the unsurpassable worth of folks that, 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 are, that are looked down on and, and whose worth is being denied. Where do we see Calvary put on display, that humility put on display, that self-sacrificial love put on display in a way that contrasts with what's already out there? Uh, where are the prostitutes and the tax collectors? Uh, why aren't they beating down our doors to hang out with us? Because we are just such worth-affirming folks. Uh, folks, I, I can't fix the, the entire church, but I'm calling on us uh, to recommit and reorient our life to being the ambassadors God calls us to be that are salt preservatives of worth and that bring out the inherent uh, resources of others. We're called to be different. We're called to look at people differently with a different set of eyes, not with a normal set of eyes that assigns worth and detracts worth. We've got to get rid of that autopilot, can be transformed by the renewal of our minds so that what we see when we see people are, we see them in the light of the cross, in light of what God has done for them. Second Corinthians 5, we see a new creation and we operate and interact with them on the basis of that hope. We stay in contact with people. We mix it up. We're called to have a different kind of heart that's willing to mix it up with people. Not a prissy little, and we get my hands dirty. No, to, to be willing to, as God empowers us and as we're able, to, to be involved in people's lives, to care about that elderly person on our block that no one else can visit. You're saying that you are worth visiting, you're worth paying attention to, or however God leads you. That's the call of the kingdom. And I'll just say one final word, and that's this. Jesus is not here. He's most definitely is not saying, go and try to be salty. You mark, it's that go. Let's salt on people. No, you can't do that. He, he, he says you are the salt of the world. He doesn't say try to be the salt of the world. He says you are the salt of the world. Because here's the thing. If we are authentically kingdom, we will be salt. To be authentically kingdom means that we live in that narrative. Our, our identity throughout the day is that we're here on assignment. We're ambassadors. We don't forget that fact. Um, we live in the narrative where we're following the example of Jesus and we're partnering with God to bring out uh, the resources and others and to protect the worth of others. Uh, to live in, if you live in that narrative and be transformed by the renewing of your mind, well, you will find that you are being salt. Uh, you'll, you'll be affirming the worth of others in word and deed. Uh, it, it, it comes naturally if, in fact, you are being in the kingdom. But that's the thing that we have to keep from being deluded. Okay? Keep, keep the kingdom holy. Keep the kingdom distinct means keep that calling of yours, your unique salt calling, separate. Don't let it get mixed up with the dirt of the world. And it can be good things out there, but it's not the kingdom. Don't, don't get it mixed up. Don't dilute it. Because if the salt loses the saltiness, well, then it's just more common dirt. More common dirt. I, I would like to end with a, a, a very short prayer, a, a group prayer. Um, I just feel like you know, there is a power in affirming things together uh, and in expressing a unity of spirit and a unity of commitment. It pulls us all along. We're supposed to be doing this together. It's, it's not a, this is not a solo thing. So here's a short prayer, closing prayer, uh, about our call to be salt to the world, to be distinct. 
Uh, I'll read the first line, and, and Shauna will then read the part that, that you're to read. If we were together here, I'd say, scream it out, you know, declare it. But it's kind of weird to be doing that in your home, so you can be as quiet as you want or as loud as you want. Uh, you know, but I would encourage you, though, however, to affirm it. Because it's not just about you, it's about us. So let's affirm this all together. Amen. Hmm. Abba Father, as those who have surrendered the reins of their life over to you, we confess that we are called to be a holy, distinct, and set-apart people. We commit to walking in the uniquely loving way of Jesus Christ. Abba Father, you call us to a different source of life. We find our life, our worth, and our identity in Jesus Christ alone. Abba Father, you call and empower us to follow a different kind of king. We will together follow the humble, self-sacrificial example of Jesus. Abba Father, you call us to represent a different kind of kingdom. We commit to seeking first the kingdom of God and its right relatedness. Abba Father, you call us to love without judgment and to do good without thought of return. Free us from our judgments Judgments and open open our our eyes to see everyone in the light light of of the the cross. cross. Help Help us to individually and collectively collectively reflect your loving loving kindness to every person we encounter. And use us to further bring about your will on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. 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 Turn it over to Shana. Thank you all for joining us, Um, and we want to remind you that what you just heard was really good, and we encourage you to take time to reflect on it, to think about it, and if you'd like to engage Greg's sermon further, you have a couple of opportunities to do that with others from Woodland Hills. First of all, you can watch the Musecast on Tuesday afternoons, where we dive a little deeper into uh, the Sunday sermon, and remember, you can also be a part of a gathering group on Tuesday evening or Wednesday morning, where you get to discuss the sermon and how it pertains to your life and how you can walk out these values. Also remember that if you have prayer, we don't want you to to log off before you come into agreement with someone. And so we have uh, prayer counselors in Zoom room. So please hop in there uh, and get prayer um, from a prayer partner. Thank you for joining us. We are so appreciative. We love you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.